Have you been taking these classes? Yeah, I, he was one of my favorite professors, so I, I graduated from the seminary and I had him for several classes, and he always does a good job. Yeah, Okay. Well, good. I hope I can continue that. <laughs> I'll do my best. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan. John, nice to meet you. Yeah. Wondering if you're a wanderer. No, not really. You usually yeah. sit right there because I'm probably going to yeah. start live streaming and duck out and get some work done and come back in. Yeah, I won't, I won't move away, I promise. <laughs> Snowburger every once in a while kind of migrate over to one side to get a Okay. No, I think I'll stay pretty well okay. set. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I see that you have a history campus theological seminary. Yes. So when did you go? I was there uh, 13 to 17. And then since 17, I've been working in the office. Then you knew Claude Wiggins. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, he's my nephew. Oh, small world. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying something. So how are they doing? I know they're out in Massachusetts. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. I don't remember it. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure this is my first time here for a service. Yeah.
filling in for Mark. Maybe Tim Miller. Tim Miller, another guy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I'm supposed to get started at uh, 7.15, right? Um, I'm glad to be here. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to, to Matthew 24. We'll flip around a couple places, but my main goal tonight is to go through Matthew 24 and 25. I've been told that uh, Mark Snowberger is going through eschatology. Is that correct? Yeah. He wasn't pulling my leg. And uh, I thought looking at uh, Jesus's main teaching on eschatology would fit with that and be helpful. You guys all have a set of notes. So there's notes here. Uh, at times, I may read the notes and follow them carefully. Other times, I may deviate. It helps me keep on track. And uh, if there's something I'm not clear about, hopefully it's a resource that you can look back on afterwards. But I'll stop and ask uh, for questions. If I don't stop and you have a question, just raise your hand. Um, I, won't, I don't mind uh, deviating and talking about other things that you're interested in. Within reason, right? If it's completely off the topic, then maybe we'll just have to talk afterwards. All right, so my name is Ryan Meyer. Um, I work at the seminary alongside Dr. Snowberger. And um, I'm thankful that even though you knew there was a substitute tonight, you still came anyway. So I'm grateful for that. Let's go ahead and open a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive into this great passage. Father, I am grateful for your son, um, since tonight we're especially looking at his words, uh, we want him to be honored and to be glorified. Uh, we don't take it lightly that he has spoken to us and that your prophets recorded it and it's been preserved, passed down so that tonight we could read it. I pray that you'd help me to speak clearly and uh, accurately. I pray that you'd give all of us ears to hear and a heart that wants to listen to Christ's message and apply it to our own lives. And we ask for this help in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Most of the controversy surrounds Matthew 24. Those tend to be where most of the interpretive issues are that people like talking about or people like debating. So we'll probably spend more time in 24 than we will in 25. But I want to save a little room at, for 25 because that's really the application. You can think of this as a sermon. This is a sermon that Jesus gave. So like any good sermon, it has one clear point. And so at the end of that first paragraph, I tried to summarize Jesus' main point. So if you'd been listening to Jesus give the sermon, if you'd been recording notes, and you were trying to boil it down to one big idea, this is my attempt at it, okay? So I think what Jesus is saying is the predicted end of the age will appear suddenly and without warning after a long wait. So my disciples should be busy serving and eagerly anticipating my return. So Matthew actually has five big discourses that he structures his whole gospel around. It's possible that he intends those to match the five books of Moses, and it's another way of presenting Jesus as the new Moses, who has come to deliver Israel, just like the first Moses did. But whatever his reason, it's pretty clear because he has these five big discourses. Each one of them starts with a unique setting that introduces it. And then at the end, this is kind of the giveaway, each one of them finishes with some kind of saying, like you see there in chapter 26, verse 1. Something like when Jesus had finished saying these things, or when Jesus had finished speaking, some phrase like that that always begins with, when Jesus had finished. That marks this out as one of the five main discourses. When you get to the end of Matthew's gospel, and he says that he wants us to go and to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded, surely at the forefront of that teaching has to be these discourses, right? It just makes sense in Matthew's gospel. If he's made the effort to put these five big sermons from Jesus in there, that that would form the backbones, really, of what we're supposed to be teaching others when we make disciples of Jesus. All right? So first of all, let's look at the, the setting of the sermon. So Jesus had just left the temple for the final time in verse 1 after he had lamented over the city. 
He had talked not only about their, their coming judgment and destruction, but then also the restoration of Israel on the other side of that judgment. Let me just read chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you, to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house, I think that's the temple, is being left to you desolate. It's going to be vacant. I'm leaving. Jesus says, For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's against that setting where he not only says, I'm leaving, and your temple is going to be left desolate, it's going to be left vacant, but someday I'm also coming back, and you, the people, he's referring to Israel collectively as a, as a family, as a group, you as a family, as a people, someday will welcome me back. At the triumphal entry, that Sunday, he had come into the town, and the people had quoted the same psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's just a small group of probably Galilean disciples who had come with him. Someday he imagines or, or predicts, is a better way of saying it, the whole nation welcoming him and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they, they leave the temple, they walk across the Kidron Valley, they go up to the Mount of Olives. The disciples point out how beautiful the temple was. So just to give you a little feel for that, I gave you a quote there from Josephus. He describes the beauty, the, the gold that overlaid much of the temple. If it wasn't covered with gold, you could see the white limestone that it was built out of. From a distance, this thing would glow in the sun. It would look like a, a snow-topped mountain. I mean, it's just a beautiful, white, giant building, one of the wonders of the ancient world. The disciples are probably thinking, yes, Jesus, someday we will welcome you back. The prophet said you will have a temple. The prophet Haggai said that someday even the Gentiles would bring treasures into your temple. And Jesus probably jars their attention a little bit by pointing out the fact that this temple, this specific one that they're marveling over, will actually be destroyed. He says in verse 2, Do not see all these things. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So as he says that, the disciples, I mean, you can't know for sure what they're thinking. But if they're thinking about Old Testament prophecy, they're probably thinking, okay, if this temple is going to be destroyed, that means Jesus is going to make a better one, right? The only reason you would knock down this temple is if you were going to make something better. And they had a precedent in their not-so-distant past because Herod had actually knocked down the existing temple in order to completely remodel it. You know, sometimes we think of Herod's remodeling of the temple made by Zerubbabel as just being kind of a modification but it was actually like an extreme makeover. One of those TV shows where they don't really make the house better, they actually just knock the house completely down and start over, and they call it a remodeling. That's what Herod had just done, right? And so that's probably what the disciples are thinking of. Jesus is actually predicting something better, a better temple, and he's actually predicting what's going to take place at the end of this present age. And so they ask him a two-part question in verse 3. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So the next section that we're going to look at deals with the structure of the sermon. How, how did Jesus organize his thoughts when he was communicating? And it's structured around his answers to this two-part question. So in order to understand what he's saying, it's really important that we understand the questions that they're asking. So the first question is a when question. It's about time. When will these things happen? The second one is a, is a what question. What will we see? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, some writers, even writers like Walvard, who I respect, they like to break that second question into uh, two parts. So they end up with a total of three questions. But I think it's better in order, instead of that being two different questions, it's just a one question with two parts, okay? Because they think of those two things, your coming and the end of the age, as happening together. When Jesus returns, the end of this age will take place, 
so that another future age will then begin. Another important thing that I want to point out at this point that they'll refer to the end of the age or sometimes just the end over and over again in this sermon. And when they refer to the end, don't think of like the end of history. Don't think of like, you know, time goes by and then all of a sudden the credits roll and it says the end and then nothing else happens, right? We know from the rest of Scripture that that's not what takes place with human history. There's this age, this, this evil age, this age that's still cursed, and then there's going to be an age to come that'll start with a millennial reign of Christ and then stretch out into eternity, right? That, that future age is going to come after this age ends. So they're referring to the end of this age, not the end of history. The other thing that I want to point out, and this isn't in the notes, just something I want to make sure that we understand, that when we talk about the end, the end isn't just a, a, like a dot, a single point. The end is like a complex of events. When the end comes, it'll be like a, a campaign that extends over a period of time. Maybe one way to illustrate this is like a military campaign. You know, we'll refer to the Battle of Gettysburg, right? as if it's just a single event, but if we know our history, it took place over three days, right? Or we'll refer to the Battle of, of uh, Stalingrad during World War II as a single event, but it actually took place over months, right? It's a long campaign. The end of this age, or what the prophets refer to as the day of the Lord, when God returns to take back his rightful rule over this planet, it can be compared to a military campaign. It's referred to as a day or the end, but it's going to take place over a long period of time. That explains why when Jesus starts describing the end, he can describe multiple things that take place because he's talking about this whole end as a package, as a unit. Does that, does that make sense? Does that follow? All right. One other thing to look at here before we get to the structure is this setting on the Mount of Olives. Let's go over to Zechariah 14, just in case we haven't read or heard this passage recently. Zechariah 14, one of the last prophets of the Old Testament. This is why the setting on the Mount of Olives is probably uh, particularly important, and this probably plays into why the disciples ask the question that they ask. So this is a prophecy given by Zechariah talking about this future day of the Lord that's coming. He says in verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So it's a very bad time that's coming for the people of Israel where their city is going to be attacked. This would have probably played into the disciples' thinking when they heard Jesus predict the destruction of the temple. But then it says in verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. So someday a great time of distress for Israel, where they're attacked by the nations, and all hope seems to be lost. But then their Lord, Yahweh himself, who we now know will come in the person of Jesus Christ, will return and actually put, put his feet on the Mount of Olives, waging war against Israel's enemies and saving her. That, that's just one of several Old Testament passages that we could go to that's telling the same story that Jesus is telling in Matthew 24, and the two can be overlaid with each other. All right, that's the setting. What about the structure? How does Jesus answer these two questions? Well, I'm going to suggest first, and then I'll try to show that it's true, but first he answers the second question. So he answers the two questions in reverse order. In verses 4 through 31, Jesus answers the second question, the what question. And he does it by describing signs that will precede his second coming. And then in verse 38, 36, he switches to a different question. So point two there at the very bottom of that page. 
in our uh, different Bible translations translate it different ways, but in the Christian Standard Bible, it has now concerning. So Jesus has been answering the, the second question first, describing signs. When he gets to verse 36, he says, now concerning that day and hour. And it's the same phrase that appears other times in the New Testament when an author is, he's talking about something that's related, but it's also a new topic. So a good place to look this up would be those references in 1 Corinthians that I gave you. So just to, to quote some of these. So in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul's going along and then he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So I've been talking about one thing, but now I'm going to switch topics and I'm going to talk about those things that you wrote me about. And then in verse 25, he says, now concerning virgins or young women. Chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. And especially in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, I think this is a very key passage where we see Paul taking Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives and applying it in a new setting when he's talking to the people at Thessalonica. Chapter 4 is the passage on the rapture where he talks about the dead in Christ and those who are still alive being caught up to the air to meet the Lord. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, now concerning days and times, and he starts referring to the day of the Lord. It's still a related topic. It's still about eschatology, but it's also a new topic. And this is his way of signaling it. I think Paul actually is copying Jesus here because Jesus does the same thing in verse 36. All right, any questions there about the, the structure or the setting? Otherwise, we'll flip the page and we'll start with C. This is where the controversy comes in. So the interpretations of this, of this sermon, what Jesus is saying, can basically be grouped into three categories. So I, I'm painting with broad brushes, I admit it. If you, if you had these men here, they among themselves would probably point out little differences that they have, okay? But in broad terms, you can put everybody into three categories. So the first category, these would be scholars who would say the passage is entirely, or at least mostly, about the events surrounding AD 70 and the coming of Christ spoken of in chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, is his coming in judgment in AD 70. So the passage that we would commonly think is referring to Jesus' second coming as a future event that still hasn't taken place, these scholars, most of them would say that is going to take place. We're not denying that Jesus isn't going to return. We're just saying that Jesus isn't talking about that right now. We've misunderstood Jesus. What Jesus is actually talking about is something that happened in AD 70. When the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem, that was a judgment from God. It was God's presence being felt by the Jewish people. And so in that sense, Jesus had returned. That was Jesus's coming. It's, it's the preterist view, yeah. So I think preterist is just the Latin word for, for past. So it's the idea that most of Jesus's predictions that from his time were future, from our time are past. They've already taken place. It used to be not a very common view, but it's actually become more common recently because there's a couple of scholars there that are, are big names. These are well-known names in New Testament studies, uh, men that write books regularly who are arguing for this position. All right, the second one, this is probably the most common view in evangelical circles. So among conservative evangelicals, number two is the biggest view. This is the majority view. They would say the passage is about both the events of AD 70 and a still future return of Christ. Some of them would say the two things are neatly divided in the passage. So D.A. Carson would be one example of this, an excellent New Testament scholar. He would say the break is at verse 25, or 29. Sorry. So in chapter 24, verse 29, everything before verse 29 is talking about things that have already taken place. Everything from verse 29 forward is talking about Jesus' future second coming. And there will also be men like David Turner and Grant Osborne that would say the two are kind of telescoped together. So that Jesus is talking about two different things at the same time, and you can't neatly divide them. We're not always sure when he's talking about one and not the other. The third view says the passage is entirely, or at least mostly, I'm trying to qualify it, about the future. 
So in this category, you could put most dispensationalists like myself, but ironically, you could also put many critical scholars because the critical scholars say Jesus is talking about the future. Jesus just got it wrong. So Jesus made all kinds of predictions about what's going to take place at the end, but then Jesus died and the whole thing never came to pass. So critical scholars also take this view, even though they come to it with uh, unhelpful presuppositions from my perspective, right? So holy, those holding this position often argue that either Jesus never was speaking about the destruction at 8070, or he's only speaking about it in Luke's version of the sermon. So I'm arguing for a version of this view, and I'm putting the break at verse 15, all right? So this is the moment everybody was waiting for, right? If you were going to trip me up with hard questions. Now I'm putting my cards down on the table. So from verse 15 onward, I think Jesus is describing things that are still future from our perspective. From verse 14 and up, you know, before that, I think these are things that have already taken place or are currently taking place. And really, all three of these views, they really struggle and differ among themselves because we have a hard time identifying three things. So these are the three key issues. One is, what does Jesus mean by this abomination of desolation in verse 15? What does he mean by a great tribulation in verse 21? And again, the tribulation of those days in verse 29. So view one thinks these are all things that have already taken place. Uh, view two says it's a mixture. Some of them have taken place, some of them not. View three sees them as, as still future things, either beginning in verse four or verse 15, and I'm arguing for verse 15. All right, that's all the, the preliminary stuff, the, the more boring stuff. So we've talked about the setting, you know, what, what's going on, why does Jesus get asked the question, why does he give the sermon? Uh, we've talked about the structure. We've talked about these three big interpretations, three main ways of, of uh, referring to it. And uh, our friends read, right, the first one you could call the preterist view, the third one you could call the futurist view, and then the, the middle one, for lack of a better term, sometimes it's called the revised uh, preterist hyphen futurist view, or sometimes just the preterist dash futurist view, okay? So sometimes you'll see that kind of language there. But now let's get to the fun part, right? What does Jesus actually say in the sermon? And then what does Jesus want us to do with it, right? We have to at least get to that point, okay? So remember, I'm saying that in chapter 24, verses 4 through 35, that Jesus is actually answering the second question first. So he's answering the questions in reverse order. That's not an unusual thing in the Bible. The, The biblical authors actually would have viewed that as kind of a literary device, a nice, nice, beautiful way of answering something and writing something to go back and forth like that. So I don't think that that's unusual. But the proof is really in the pudding, right? It's one thing for me to suggest that that's what Jesus is doing, but you actually have to look at the verses for yourself and see, is he answering a question about when? Is it a timing question? Or is he actually answering a question about what? Is he giving specific signs? All right. And there, I think this first section where he's answering the second question can be divided. And we can see this in our Bibles. So if you've got your Bibles there, most of our Bibles will have some kind of paragraph marks. The other way you can see this is by the little word then that keeps showing up when Jesus is speaking. So I think in verses 4 and 5, he gives a general warning. He's suggesting there that there'll be other people who will show up while he's gone and claim to be him and who will actually deceive other people. This has happened in our lifetime, right? Remember David Koresh, Jim Jones? There's all kinds of cult leaders who have showed up in relative recent history and have claimed not just that they were the Messiah, but that they've actually claimed that they were Jesus himself. And I think Jesus is already preparing his disciples for the fact that he's going to be gone a long time. That's one of his main points in chapter 25. So there's actually going to be people like us who follow Jesus who've never actually seen him, right? We don't actually know what he looks like. You know, we wouldn't recognize him if we walked up and talked to him. But there's, so there's going to be people who are false messiahs actually claiming to be Jesus when they're not the real deal. So Jesus says in verses 4 through 5, 
See to it that no one misleads you. So watch out. Be careful about this. This is the, the big command to start out the sermon. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will mislead many. So he goes from there in the next paragraph, verses 6 through 8, to describe, I think, this, this whole time period while he's going to be gone. And he does it not by describing the signs that will show that the end has actually come, but showing the false signs. So I'm calling these the non-signs of the end. So it says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See to it that you're not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. You hear that? This is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. So we don't have time to do it right now, but just highlight Jeremiah 51, verses 45 through 48. It's right in the middle of that last paragraph. And just look it up later. And you'll see here that Jesus is, he's alluding or he's echoing an Old Testament passage, this nation against nation. It's a passage that describes the fall of Babylon, and it warns the people of Israel that Babylon's going to fall after a long time period has gone by, and you're going to get all kinds of false alarms, false rumors that wars have taken place. And when you hear these false alarms, you're going to think, well, this is it. The end has finally come. Babylon, our our arch enemy is actually going to fall, but the prophet Jeremiah says, don't believe those false warnings, okay? It's actually going to take place after a long time. Jesus is doing the same thing here. So I, I would suggest to you that these non-signs are like what we would call today Braxton Hicks contractions. They can deceive us into believing that labor has already begun. So I'm already talking about something that I don't really know that much about, but you only have these types of false contractions if you're really going to have a child, right? So there is a connection to the end. The child is coming, or else you wouldn't have the Braxton Hicks contractions. But just because you're currently having these false contractions now, or these smaller contractions, that doesn't mean that the end is imminent, right? There still could be a long delay. I think that's the, what Jesus means by the beginning of birth pains. His followers, you and I, are going to live during a time period where we suffer. That's the, the burden of the next paragraph. And we hear of all kinds of things that are going to look like the end, but we can't be deceived into thinking that when we see those things, that the end has actually arrived. I mean, just, just stop and think about the application of that, right? We, we, at least in Western Christianity, tend to do the opposite, right? We tend, I think many people tend, to hear of things on the news, maybe something that's going on in the Middle East, or, or maybe it's a blood moon, or whatever the, the current thing is that everyone's talking about, and we usually take those to be what? Signs of the end, right? That Jesus is coming soon. And Jesus is actually going to make very clear as he goes through the sermon that he's going to come without warning. He's actually going to come like a thief who never tells you ahead of time, hey, I'm on my way. You know, I'll be there at 8 o'clock. You know, the thief never gives you any kind of warning. So to catch a thief, you have to be what? Always awake, always alert. So we've actually forgotten what Jesus has warned us here about things that will take place during this time period that actually aren't signs. Yes, sir? You remember like about 10 years ago, there was that group that had like billboards in all over the nation that was saying it's going to be on this day. And I was yeah. like, yeah. in a very, there was one of the telegraphs in Pennsylvania. I was like, it's going to be crazy. Right. And he literally says, you don't know. So that's going to be the day he doesn't come. Right. Because <laughs> th that is how he answers the first question, right? Verse 36, I don't know. Because as a human, he says, I don't know. Only the Father knows. So for any of us to claim that we know the date, we would have to be claiming something that Jesus himself just said he didn't even know, putting ourselves in a position above our Lord. It doesn't seem to be a new problem, though, for Christians. I mean, this has been going around forever. I'm old enough to remember when you know, Gorbachev was somehow tied into uh, end-time history, right? Some of you probably remember when Kissinger was tied into end-time history. So Christians have been doing this for a long time, and I suggest one of the reasons why we do it because we haven't listened closely to Jesus' sermon, right? Jesus knew we were going to be prone to this, and so he warned us about it ahead of time, that you were going to have these, these labor pains, these sorrows, and you were going to take them as signs of the end, 
but the end was still not yet. The end was still far away. I won't go through verses um, 9 through 14, but in 9 through 14, I think he's talking about the same time period. You see in verse 9, he says, Then, I think we should take that as then at that same time, you guys will suffer. So these are non-signs that are specific to believers. The first paragraph is non-signs that are universal, that the whole world experiences. The second paragraph is specific things that his followers will suffer during this time. But let's get to verse 15. So flipping the page, letter D at the top there. Jesus switches from non-signs to genuine signs. When you see these things take place, then you're actually in the end. And remember, the end isn't like a, like a dot, okay? The end is a complex. It's like a campaign. It's like Gettysburg. It's like Stalingrad. It could take place over a long period of time. I'm going to suggest that it takes place at least over three and a half years because of one of the passages that we're going to look at. But you'll know that it's actually begun when you see this thing. So he says in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So notice the shift there. You know, before it was, you know, you're going to see things, but don't be concerned about it, because that's not the end. Now he's shifted, but when you see this thing, this is the end, so flee. They'll actually be followers of of Christ who will be able to see this and discern it as a genuine sign. So what is this, this abomination of desolation? So the similar phrase occurs several times in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, chapter 11, but the exact same phrase appears in 12:11. So I think that's the important one. It's the same thing that's talked about in Daniel 9:27, but I think Matthew wants us to overlay the story of Daniel 11 36 through chapter 12, 13. Let's, let's flip over there. We won't read that whole passage, but I just want you to make sure that, I want to make sure you're familiar with it at least, and so that you can look at it later. Look at Daniel eleven thirty six through the end of the book. A switch takes place. Daniel's given a vision over all of history from his time period to the very end, but in verse 36, he starts describing a future king. We know this isn't one of the Greek kings that he's been describing earlier because he refers to this man as being all-religious, not worshiping the, the, his ancestral gods. So it's specifically not a reference to Antiochus IV, the, the king that critical scholars would often point to, because Antiochus, if you remember your history, Jewish history, the event that he's most known for is going into the Jewish temple and offering a sacrifice to Zeus or some kind of desecration that involves the worship of Zeus. So he was a typical pagan who worshipped multiple idols. So he's not the king that's referred to. I think this king is, is the Antichrist. He's the final king, the same king that's referred to in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. The description of him goes all the way from verse 36. And then in chapter 12, the passage picks up. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people everywhere, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So there will be the rise of this, this king. This king will do something that's sacrilegious, that desolates the temple. So I think that's another way of translating the phrase, the abomination of desolation. It's a, it's a uh, uh, probably a desolating sacrilege is how the NRSV puts it. It's a desolating sacrilege. So something awful will happen in the temple that will make the temple unusable, okay? That will have to be gone vacant. You won't be able to offer proper sacrifices. And Daniel says at the end of the book here, in chapters 11 and 12, that from the time that this takes place, you'll actually be able to mark out days from then until the establishment of Jesus' kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom. So this makes it a very appropriate sign for Jesus to point to, right? Because it's a sign that the prophet Daniel already said, when you see this, you'll know from then until the, the end of the end, there's going to be a certain marked out period of time. 
Jesus is picking up that same pattern in his teaching to his disciples. When you see this abomination of desolation, when you see this Antichrist do something awful in the temple there in Jerusalem, you'll know that the establishment of my kingdom is only a specific number of days away. And it'll lead right into this unprecedented time of great tribulation. So look at verse 21 in chapter 24 now, going back to Matthew. He tells them to, to flee. He tells Jewish people that they need to make sure it's not the Sabbath. He says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. That sounds just like Daniel 12.1, right? The passage I just read. They're talking about the exact same time period. Okay? Any, any questions there? I know that's probably one of the three main controversial passages in the, in the book. Yeah, in the back row there. Yeah, that wouldn't match up with other places that talk about a seven-year period and then they split it in half. So, so, so there when you say the great tribulation, you're talking about God's wrath being put out in that seventh or the The last half of the Daniel's 70th week, that three-and-a-half-year period, because of the way that Daniel talks about it as being 1,290 days. Yes, sir. I know this is not regarding the church age, Mm -hmm. that are living at that time and in that time period with the Antichrist and the tribulation. Uh, but this, this warning, I mean, it's given to the disciples who are Christians. I mean, do you think that there will be any, any availability of this information to Jews at that time? Well, I would assume that Scripture will still be preserved for them, right? So not only would they still have the prophet Daniel, I mean, we still have unbelieving Jewish scholars today writing commentaries on the book of Daniel. So they're well aware of it. They have it. But I would also assume that God would also preserve His Word, right? And that there would also be copies of the New Testament for, for individuals to read. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a fair assumption. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. um, and yet this would lead us to believe that there's going to be quite a few that are, that are going to be following the law um, and be aware of this in order for them to, um, you know, not, they're not going to go on the Sabbath or if they're with child or anything like that. So they've got to be um, practicing Jews. Yeah, I mean, I've got two thoughts. Um, I don't know if you can tell me if this answers your question. One thought is we have to remember that when Jesus gives the sermons, he always gives them in the historical context of the people first addressed. So, for example, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us if we're offering a sacrifice at the temple and we remember we have something against our brother to leave the sacrifice and then go th make things right. Well, I think there's an application there for us in the church age, even though we don't offer sacrifices at a temple. What we have to do is take the principle out of his historic context and bring that principle over to our historic context then and, and think through how it applies. So even though Jesus refers to the Sabbath, this could also apply to people in, in a future day in Israel, even if they're not practicing the Sabbath, you know, to a large degree. But also I think there are still people who would take the Sabbath very seriously today in Israel. Um, as far as I know, there would still be quite a few people that that would be significant for him. We're not actually sure why he warns them. It could be he's just saying travel will be difficult because people don't travel on the Sabbath. It could be that you'll be retaliated against. So if others see you traveling on the Sabbath, they'll, they'll harm you because they'll think of you as lawbreakers. So we're not exactly sure, at least I'm not sure, why Jesus gives that specific warning. Yeah. Yeah. So that might be another cause why so many Jews are trying to get back to God because of punishment or whatever else is going on at that time too. Yeah, I do think that this whole passage, and you know, we could spend a lot of time, you know, going through all of the the, the Gospel of Matthew. A little later in the uh, the notes, I reference the the promise that starts out the book in chapter one. 
Remember the angel says about Jesus that he will save his people from their sins. They're supposed to give him the name, he says to Joseph, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And I think his people, the way Matthew and his original readers would have heard that, means the Jewish people. Not that Jesus won't also save Gentiles. The Old Testament prophets always said that when Israel was saved, that Gentiles would be saved along with them. But what primarily has to happen in order for Jesus' kingdom to be established here on earth is for the people of Israel to welcome him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They actually have to be saved from their sins. So that's a, a storyline, a thread that goes all the way through Matthew's gospel. These people need to be saved. Both John and Jesus have preached a message of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, and most of them have rejected Jesus, right? And because of that, we see the, the people of Israel still in a state of apostasy spread out over the whole world, and it will all climax with this, this final evil ruler, perhaps even one of their own countrymen, right, claiming to be the Messiah who will rescue them. But when things look the darkest for them, then that prophecy from Zechariah 14 will actually take place, that their true Messiah, Jesus, our Lord, will return from heaven. He will defeat his enemies, and he will, he will rescue, and he'll regather his people. So before we get to that, so that's basically 29 through 31, where Jesus describes his, his second coming. There is this brief parenthesis in 23 through 28. So in my Bible, I, I just mark it because sometimes it's easy for me to, if I have markings, to remember that this is kind of an aside. It kind of breaks the storyline. So in verses uh, 16 through 22, he's been describing this, this great tribulation. In 29, he picks up, but immediately after that tribulation, you see that? Immediately after the tribulation, he describes his second coming. But in the middle, he takes this little break, and he warns his people again, his followers, about false messiahs and false prophets. So during this time period, if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, I've, I've seen Jesus, I've got him in this secret room, or he's, he's out in this compound somewhere, let's go out and see him, Jesus says, don't believe that, right? Because when I actually do take place, it'll be, it'll be very visible. It'll be like the way you can see lightning in the sky. And then he makes also this kind of cryptic reference in verse 28 to corpses and vultures. But then there in verses 29 through 31, he describes the second coming, coming immediately after this great tribulation. I just want to stop for a second and respond to to one of the, the prominent uh, objections to the, to the interpretation or the reading that I'm presenting. So, for example, Carson, a great New Testament scholar who I admire, he would take verses 29 through 31 to be a description of Jesus' second coming. It's just the most natural way of reading that text. The preterist interpretation gives a meaning to coming that coming never has in the rest of the Gospels. It just makes more sense to understand this in Daniel, a Daniel 7 sense of Jesus returning to establish his kingdom. And Carson also recognizes that the second coming, as it says, comes immediately after the tribulation of those days. So what he does, because he sees the abomination of desolation being the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, he has to stretch the tribulation over the entire church age. So it has to begin in AD 70, and it has to go all the way to the second coming so that the second coming can still be immediately after. You see his logic? It kind of makes sense, right? He's just stretched the great tribulation over the entire church age. My, my response to that would be what Jesus says here about cutting those days short. So look at verse 22. Jesus says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And there, I think, again, you should go back to Daniel 12, 11, where he talks about those days only being 1,290. My objection to Carson would be that if the time period is longer than the lifespan of a normal person, then no one would be saved, right? It only makes sense that it's shortened and allows people to live if the now shortened time period is less than the time we normally live, right? If it stretches over thousands, now 2,000 years, lots of people have come and gone, right? Lots of people have died. That would make Jesus' promise to shorten it to save lives meaningless. Does that make sense? 
So I think that's one of the clues, if I can use that word, I don't want to sound trite, but one of the indications in this text that Jesus is talking about a very short time period that will take place immediately before the end of the end. Okay? Then we get to the, the parable of the fig tree in verses 32 through 35. Let me just read a little bit there, the bottom of page 3. He says, after having reached the end, and by the end I'm talking about the regathering of Israel at the end of the age, this, this thing that sometimes is described as a new exodus or a second exodus. After he gets there in verse 31, and having described the signs that will lead to that end, Jesus closes this first main section of his discourse with a parable regarding a fig tree. First, Jesus draws attention to the general truth that the appearance of tender branches and leaves ready to sprout on a fig tree indicates that summer is near. So, I'm a city person. I don't know anything about agriculture, let alone fig trees, but I'm going to take Jesus at his word, right? His disciples knew this, that there was a certain fig tree that when they saw the leaves start budding on it, even though it might still be cool out and early in the springtime or even late in the winter, when they saw those, they knew that it, it's debated whether it means spring or summer, but either way, that the, the warmer temperatures were coming. From that general truth that everyone would have known, he makes an, an analogy to something for his listeners' experience. It says, thus, when they see all these things, they will know that it or he is near. So the it it could be the kingdom. So in Luke's account, Luke chapter 21, it's the kingdom is near. If it's a masculine pronoun, it could be he, it could be a reference to Jesus. But either way, it doesn't really matter because Jesus and the kingdom are going to come together, right? At the very end of the age. So when the end of the age is near, is going to be after you've seen all these things. Verse 34 is probably the most debated verse in the whole passage. I mean, it's a, at least close to verse 15. There's three things that we have to, to tackle in that passage. And really the first one, what does generation mean? That really bleeds into why we have the three different views that I presented at the morning or at the beginning. So maybe if you're not familiar with the preterist view, the view that says that everything that Jesus was talking about happened in AD 70, if, if you're not familiar with that, the first time you hear it, that might seem strange. But it actually has a logic to it. Uh, these are good scholars who have reasons for why they argue this. And the reason why they argue it is because they're taking Jesus' saying about generation to mean his group of contemporaries. So that's how we normally use the word English, or the English word generation, right? So you've got millennials, you've got Gen Xers, you've got baby boomers. I don't remember the exact order, right? But we've got these these stratas in the, the family tree of humanity, people who were born at basically the same time and will die at basically the same time. So people see the word generation, they assume that what Jesus is saying is, hey, everything that I just talked about, all these things, it will actually take place while my generation is still alive. And they would normally take passing away to mean his death. I actually put in a, a Greek word there for you, not that it's that important for you to know the word, but I thought by putting it on the page, it would help us to remember that Jesus wasn't speaking in English. And what I'm actually trying to argue for is a different way of translating that word, that the word shouldn't be translated generation. And that by translating it that way, we've actually given Jesus' uh, words here a false connotation. All right, The word can also be translated as family, children, descendants, or even race. And I'm, I'm going to argue it's probably a reference to a, a group of children. So I give you a couple examples there, just so you don't have to take my word for it. Josephus, he talks about this man, Simeon, who committed suicide after killing his own family. That's the word, family there. Or Titus, when he enters into Jerusalem in AD 70, he finds whole Jewish families who didn't want to be captured, so they all committed suicide together or they had starved because of the, the horrible deprivation during the siege. But this word, again, appears whole families. And these are just two examples. I could give you many more, but a very common way that this word is translated. It's actually, I'm going to suggest distancing language. And sometime look up Deuteronomy 32, verses 5 through 20. 
This is where Jesus is drawing his generation language from, his Ganea language from. I've got two kids, and if sometimes if they're both teenagers, if they'll do something that I'm not especially happy with, sometimes tongue-in-cheek, I'll say to my wife, do you know what your son did? Or do you know what your daughter did? Well, what am I doing in there, right? I'm, I'm distancing myself from them, because they're actually my children as well, right? We had these children together. But in order to be funny, I'm distancing myself from them. But sometimes this distancing language can actually be very serious. A good example of this is in the Old Testament prophets, where God will refer to his people, Israel, as this people, right? This people have rejected me. This people has, have pursued after idolatry. I would suggest that Jesus is doing the same thing, and he's copying it from the song that God gave to Moses in Deuteronomy 32. It's basically a national anthem for their, their, their nation. God says to Moses, hey, these people who are getting ready to go into the promised land, even though the previous generation has all died, and I'm starting over with a new group of people, right? All of these people someday will forsake me because they don't actually have a heart within them that will love my law and actually be able to, to follow me, right? They're not actually born again, if we want to use New Testament language. But God says, I want you to teach them this song so that they'll remember this song and that someday in the song it says, if you read Deuteronomy 32, that God will actually someday relent after he's punished his people, after they've suffered at the hands of, of Gentile nations, that he will actually return to them, he will avenge his enemies, and he will actually make atonement for them and for their land. He'll actually save them. You see how that fits so nicely into Matthew's story of Jesus who came to save his people from their sins? So Jesus has a, a deliberate reason from quoting from this very well-known song in Deuteronomy 32. So that's my answer to what does generation mean. It's this group of disobedient children. It's Israel viewed collectively. This whole group of children will not pass away until all these things take place. Quickly, you know, point two, I think all these things in verse 34 has to include the second coming. I think you could make a good argument that the, all these things in verse 33 doesn't, but the one in 34 has to. And it actually creates a nice bookend with chapter 23, verses 34 through 36. Let me just read that to you. So chapter 23, verses 34 through 36. This is, again, um, providing the backdrop for Jesus' whole sermon. He says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. So there, see how Jesus is referring to them as a collective group? They're responsible from, for righteous blood shed all the way from Abel to the prophet Zechariah, right? Whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Well, if you were one of those Pharisees, you would have said, well, I didn't murder him, right? I wasn't even born yet. He, he died hundreds of years ago. Well, Jesus is speaking to them as this collective group, as, as this Ganea, as this group of children. And they, as a group, as a collective, they did do it, right? Just like Paul can refer to all of humanity as this one group that's responsible for Adam's sin, Jesus can refer to the people of Israel as one group that's responsible for killing the prophets. And here's the punchline in verse 36. He says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation or, or this unbelieving group of children. It provides a bookend with his all these things in chapter 24, verse 34. So then what does it mean to pass away? So based on the parallel in verse 35, in chapter 5, verse 18, are you familiar with chapter 5, verse 18? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, when he refers to heaven and earth passing away, but not the smallest stroke or the smallest part of a letter passing away from his law. Well, heaven and earth will pass away, right? Because Jesus said it. But what does it mean for heaven and earth to pass away? Does it mean that they'll cease to exist? No, it means that they'll become something new, right? 
before I talked about the extreme makeover of the temple under Herod, but if you want to talk about a, a genuine extreme makeover, it's what God will do to this entire universe, to the entire cosmos, right? It's what in chapter 19 Jesus refers to as the regeneration of all things. Everything will be made new. We'll become something better. We'll, this whole world will go back to being what it was originally created to be, and when that happens, Israel will also be made new. They'll also go back to being the obedient children that they were created to be, who they were originally marked out to be at Sinai, but who, because of their unbelieving heart, they were unable to be. But then someday, because of God's sovereign and great grace, they will be, right? He will actually make their hearts new. So I think passing away because of the parallelism with what he says about heaven and earth passing away and the Ganea passing away, it's a re reference to their regeneration, their, their conversion at the end of the age. We've talked there about the transition that takes place in verse 36. Going into chapter, the end of chapter 24, uh, the end of chapter 25, Jesus really hammers home this, this final point in his sermon. that his, his coming, this whole end, this package, this day of the Lord, when it arrives, it'll arrive without any prior warning. So I think often the, the controversy and the debates um, associated with all the discourse, they're framed in, uh, in the context of our debates over the rapture, right? The timing of the rapture. And part of the issue with that is I don't think that the rapture of the church is directly addressed in the, the discourse itself. I don't see anywhere where it's directly. The closest that you could possibly come to would be when he's talking about people being taken in verses uh, 38 through 41. He talks about people uh, going along in everyday life, like the days of Noah. Uh, but then this, the flood came and he took some of them away. He talks about two men being in the field, one taken, one left behind. A woman being taken and one left behind. But the taken, or the, the seized, the captured, it also could be a reference to the, the day of the Lord itself. So sometime, go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. Remember I said that in 1 Thessalonians 5, Jesus seemed, or Paul seems to be building off of Jesus' words. There, Paul says to the Christians in Thessalonica, the day of the Lord won't grab you. It won't seize you, okay? Because you don't belong to the darkness, you belong to the day. In Luke chapter 21, verses 34 through 36, Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse is shorter, a little bit more concise. I think Luke knows about Matthew's account, and he's trying to give you just a little different version of Jesus' words in order to clarify things. And Luke makes it very clear that it's the, the day itself that's going to seize, that it's going to grab people. So the, the taking away doesn't necessarily have to be a reference to the rapture, most people would say it's a taken to judgment. But the only way that some people are going to be taken by the day of the Lord and some people saved from it is if right when it begins or right before it begins, Jesus actually takes some people to be to himself, which would be my understanding of what takes place in the rapture. So even though it's not directly addressed, I do think that Jesus' all the discourse does support a, a pre-tribulational rapture before this final wrath is poured out on the world. So what about the, the application then? I just wanted to point to that very last full paragraph at the bottom of page four. Here I think Carson uh, has given some of the best sermons on the parables, and so I just basically stole his points, all right? So I'm giving him credit. Those last three points are just straight from Carson's sermons. You can find these online. He helpfully describes the three parables as making the following points. So first of all, number one, we should be ready for Jesus to come back any time. That's the parable of the servants, right? The, par the servants get punished because they weren't prepared for their master to come back at any time. So this whole day of the Lord complex that Jesus has been referring to, it could happen today. It could happen a thousand years from now. I have no idea, and I think it's wrong for us to predict. The point Jesus is trying to get us to see is that we have to be ready for it at any time. Number two, we should be prepared for Jesus to be gone a long time. So sometimes Christians can make the mistake of thinking, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, you know, why worry about retirement? Why worry about the church's 50-year you know, plan? 
Why worry about the education of my great-grandchildren? You, know, you, you could fall into all kinds of traps if you mistakenly think Jesus is coming back very, very soon, right? And don't prepare for the fact that he also could be gone for a long time. He's now been gone, what, 2,000 years. And he could be gone another 2,000 years. So we need to work and plan as Christians and as churches as if he will be gone another 2,000 years and so that we'll be ready for future generations. And then the last point is that we should be busy in the meantime. Again, that's clever. I got that from Carson. But we should be busy in the meantime, the parable of the talents or bags of gold. All right. Any, any final questions? And then I think I'm supposed to cut you loose. Yep. Just wondering, I forget exactly where that was, but, but uh, you were talking about uh, uh, the remaking, uh, and it seems like there were two groups that some time back, I think the Reformed and Lutherans had uh, you know, two views on this, but, but uh, one was like that Second Peter 3 was total destruction, another one was like uh, a remaking. And uh, which was which, I don't remember. Anyway, but the thing is, is you seem to have the remaking. I thought it was, I thought Second Peter 3 was like yeah. total, total destruction. Yeah, if that was the only passage we had, that would be kind of the impression we would get. But if you put Second Peter alongside of other passages, it does seem to like this fiery chaos will lead to something new. It'll be a refining. That something, something good will come out on the other side of the fire. So what... The end of Isaiah. So that's where the reference to a new heavens and a new earth appears. So I want to say chapter 62 offhand, but I could be wrong. But no, it's probably later than that. But the last few chapters of Isaiah where it describes a new heaven and new earth. So chapter 65 or 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So I think we were created for a world very much like the one we're in, just without the curse, right? So we will go back eventually to, to Eden, to the way things were originally created. We'll enjoy many of the things that we enjoy today, the beautiful nature, uh, animals, uh, relationships with other people. We'll have jobs. We'll do things. It won't be just you know playing a harp on a cloud like sometimes it's portrayed, but it'll be without the curse, right? Um, so, yeah. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't know if we can kill fish, but. I'll catch and release. Yeah. Catch and release. All right. I, I appreciate your patience. I think I've already kept you a couple minutes over. I'll stay if people have questions, uh, but otherwise you're, you're dismissed. Thank you.